If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Why exactly did the American colonies want independence from Britain? How brutal did the revolution get? And why do so many myths swirl around the founding of America? In today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, we're tackling your top questions about the American Revolutionary War. Answering your questions was Benjamin Karp, Associate Professor of History at Brooklyn College, who spoke to History Extra's digital editor, Eleanor Evans. I'm joined by Benjamin Karp, Associate Professor and Daniel M. Lyons Chair of History at Brooklyn College, who's also the author of Defiance of the Patriots, The Boston Tea Party and the Making of America. Thanks, Ben, for joining us today. Thank you. So a reminder today that we'll be covering some listener questions on the topic. We've got a great bunch lined up, along with some popular search queries on the subject. And we'll start with a very general one to kick off our discussion, Ben, um, which is what was the American War of Independence? Uh, Well, the American War of Independence was when the Americans decided they were getting increasingly annoyed by the impositions of the British Empire. Um, And so it started out as political protest, and eventually the American colonists took up arms. Um, The clash first began on April 19th, 1775 at Lexington and Concord, uh, and the war lasted a very long time, eight years, uh, until the Treaty of Paris was finally signed. Yes, eight years, some of the action of which we're going to cover today. But if we go back to the very beginning then, um, these colonists, um, can you give us a sense of of who they were, they were living, and their, their main sort of points of contention that led to this conflict? Sure. Well, uh, there had been English-speaking American colonists in North America since the early 1600s, possibly even before then, if you want to count fishermen and things like that. And uh, and these colonists had reached a certain level of maturity. They were uh, growing more confident in their own ability to um, act on their own. They had their own political assemblies. Um, you know, they're 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 feeling their oats uh, in a way. And so, um, so the the British. Right in the meantime, have an empire to run. They impose certain trade restrictions. They need to collect a certain amount of revenue from these colonies. They're trying to run an empire, uh, and so eventually, the um, uh, Americans' desire for a certain amount of autonomy and British Parliament's desire for a certain amount of sovereignty these things come into conflict with one another, uh, and, and this leads to the political protests that begin the whole thing. Right. So you mentioned taxation there, and I guess that is uh, an issue that so many people will be familiar with in, in starting this conflict. We've got a question from Harry on Instagram, which um, has, has mentioned that. They've said, is that the most commonly cited issue here? It is the most commonly cited, although it's weird, right? The, um, the Americans paid about a fifth as much in taxes as the average British person did. They were not heavily taxed. Uh, they gained a great deal from being part of the British Empire. And so no one likes paying taxes, but the issue of taxation itself uh, was not really the issue, right? For the Americans, it was the idea, uh, the principle, right, of taxation without the consent of the governed uh, that they're increasingly getting, uh, getting angry about. But, it's, but even that is never the only thing. 
It was about free trade. It was about the white colonists' desire for westward expansion or settler colonialism. Uh, It was about local sovereignty and governance. It was about cultural independence. It was about religious and racial concerns. Uh, And to some degree, it was about mutual miscommunication between uh, the people in in London and the people in in the colonies. And so how united then are the people in the colonies over this issue? Is it a very broad issue that most people agree on? Certainly in response to the Stamp Act, there was a lot of broad agreement. I mean, one thing to remember is that depending on how you count, there were 26 colonies in the Western Hemisphere, not just the 13 who eventually rebelled. Uh, And even in some of those colonies that did not rebel, like Jamaica uh, or Barbados, there were also complaints about the Stamp Act of 1765. So um, annoyance about new uh, forms of taxation and new direct forms of taxation was uh, fairly widespread. Uh, Even a lot of people who eventually remain loyal to the British Empire in the 13 colonies also, um, you know, we're not, uh, we're not excited about, uh, about new forms of taxation. So it is a widespread issue, but it's not the only grievance. I mean, the Declaration of Independence is a long list of grievances and not all of them were about taxation. Okay, can we hear a few more of those then? Well, sure. I mean, the ones that uh, form the climate, I mean, by then the war had already started. So they're they're complaining about ships being seized and towns being burned and, um, you know, the British supposedly um, agitating enslaved people and Native Americans to attack the colonists. So, uh, you know, by the time the uh, war has actually broke out, there are a whole list of new grievances. But, you know, things like policies surrounding the fisheries, things like uh, the Royal Navy occasionally going on to the docks and seizing uh, Americans to join the Royal Navy, right? There were, there were a whole host of other grievances that we don't tend to talk about. Some of them were quite, quite complicated. Some of them were about, uh, you know, vetoing legislation that was passed by the, uh, by the various colonies. So there's, there's a whole long litany of, um, uh, of grievances against the British Empire. Right. Well, I I potentially skipped us ahead a bit there going into the war itself, but um, we've got a few what if questions and I hope it's not too early to to speculate in the podcast. Um, But we've got one from George Haig on Facebook. Thanks, George. She's asked, was there any way that Parliament could have effectively addressed this issue of taxation without representation? Well, from their perspective, from from the British perspective, and I'll be a little bit sarcastic here, they could give up all notion of sovereignty except for very narrow trade regulations. Um, you, you know, but to answer that question a little bit more seriously, I mean, students ask this all the time, right? What if the Parliament had somehow granted the Americans representation? But that was probably not realistic and not really what the Americans wanted, right? Any group of American representatives in Parliament could be easily outvoted or the representatives could be corrupted because, of course, it took three to four months for messages to get back and forth. Um, You know, uh, uh, on the issue of taxation, right, uh, what the Americans would have preferred is that they use their own colonial assemblies and voluntarily make grants uh, back to to Parliament and that that would be the way that they could get revenue from the American colonies. But in the meantime, right, like, is Parliament just to continue to only tax British people for the safety and security of these American colonists overseas, or should the Americans be paying a little bit more of their fair share? You know, so again, it's, it's exclusively on the issue of, ta- uh, of taxation, you know, it, it, it looks like the, uh, um, you know, the, uh, that's something that the British might have addressed if, you know, uh, through a variety of negotiations uh, over taxation and governance. But uh, again, it's, it's probably about more than just taxation. Yes, you've already mentioned um, quite a few issues, but I wonder if we could hear a little more from you on that stamp act that proved to be such a catalyst in the events there. 
Yeah, the Stamp Act was a um, was going to require a certain kind of stamped paper to be used on a variety of documents in America, uh, mostly having to do with um, with trade uh, and legal documents, right? So wills, deeds, um, you know, even uh, even newspapers and dice, uh, you know, and things like that. So. Uh, in other words, this was a kind of taxation that was somewhat familiar in the English-speaking world. Um, but uh, but the types of people that the Stamp Act hits are exactly the type of people you don't want to annoy: lawyers, uh, overseas merchants, and um, and tavern owners. Right? <laughs> you know, those were people who were particularly effective at making their grievances known and getting the message out about how annoyed they were. Um, and they are the people that um, whose whose livelihood uh, would would be most directly affected by the Stamp Act. And so the the outrage. That, that, that pours out of American newspapers and the, you know, and the American legal minds who begin standing up and fulminating against this, uh, it, it winds up creating a kind of tidal wave of protest and cartoons and, th- and political cartoons and things like that against, um, against that particular act. And so Parliament actually repeals it a year later, but also inserts this declaratory act saying, you know, we still have the right to make legislation on all of the colonies over anything whatsoever. And don't think that just because we're repealing this act that we concede the the right to, to tax you. We, you know, Parliament believes it still has the right to tax these colonies. I see. So you mentioned there, you know, word of mouth and protests and newspapers that are feeding the flames of revolution. How do the revolutionaries come to be united and how does the war come to, what, what's the start of the war? Sure. Well, that, I mean, that's the interesting thing that for all these protests that are happening in 1765 and 1766, the war doesn't start for another 10 years, right? So there, there, there's a lot of back and forth and, uh, you know, a lot of things happen, you know, under the bridge. I mean, how the colonies first begin talking to each other um, is interesting. I mean, of course, the colonies had been coordinating their actions to some degree with the British during the Seven Years' War, which had just terminated in 1763. So there was, you know, some history of interaction and cooperation. The colonies obviously traded with one another. Um, but there were also significant differences between the plantation colonies of the South and the more commercial and fishing colonies of New England, you, you know. So uh, there were some some differences, uh, to be sure. Uh, you know, so how are you going to get the colonies with all these different uh, different differences to coordinate with one another? Well, one of them was this organization that began in 1765 known as the Sons of Liberty, uh, you know, men meeting in, in taverns and beginning to correspond with one another about issues of mutual concern. Um, you know, there are attempts to coordinate boycotts and lobbying efforts, right? Benjamin Franklin represents I think, five different colonies uh, over in London uh, during much of this period, right? Not just Pennsylvania, but also the Massachusetts Assembly and Georgia, you know. So uh, again, so there are some efforts to kind of coordinate um, intercolonial action. By the time you get to 1775, uh, at the very beginning, it's just New Englanders who, you know, the people who are are within a distance to march on Boston. Uh, But very soon, right, you have the Continental Congress, which had first met in late 1774, uh, bringing people from the various colonies uh, together. Again, at first, only to coordinate protest, but then to begin coordinating bigger things like, let's buy some gunpowder in order to actually prosecute a war. So you've got um, these these um, this group that, that's slowly forming. I appreciate over a longer period, and you've already mentioned that there are people whose businesses are going to be hit by um, these issues who are inevitably supporting. We've had quite a lot of um, questions about 
splits um, within support for the cause. Um, we've got Harry on Instagram again, who's um, asked to what degree were most Americans on board with independence? Was it just favoured by elites? Uh, and Siswan on Instagram has also asked what, what factors determined if people supported the sovereign or supported independence? Yeah, those are great questions. I mean, you, you can point to widespread support all the way down to the poorest whites and even some people of color um, So uh, on, on the American side. So it's definitely not just el- elites, although elites have certain amounts of power to, to arrange things in various ways. But, uh, but, right, there's also a lot of dissent, people who don't trust the leading patriots for political, economic, or religious reasons, or who thought that violence would be ruinous. Um, you know, so uh, historians estimate that anywhere between 20% and maybe a third and maybe even more of the population of of American colonists would not uh, have supported the revolution, Um, uh, you know, or people who become disaffected over time uh, uh, for a variety of reasons. There's a great new book by Aaron Sullivan about that. Um, So what factors determined if colonists supported the king or sought independence? Well, there might be economic or geopolitical uh, uh, reasons, right? If you feel you benefit from the British Empire, you might want to stick around. Uh, There were ideological reasons, people who really believed in the superiority of English liberty and the constitutional monarchy and uh, and the Church of England, uh, whereas other people had more radical ideas about political equality. Uh, and the consent of the governed. Uh, there were pacifists, right, like uh, Quakers or Moravians, who really didn't think that starting a, a world war was a good idea. Uh, there were reasons of local politics. If you hate the leading patriots in your colony for some reason, you might not want to join them. Uh, and then social reasons as well. If you're black or Native American or even a middle or working class white person, you may or may not feel that the current arrangement is serving your interests. And so you might act in a variety of ways during the during the revolution. It becomes extraordinarily complicated. And we definitely cannot assume that every American is standing in lockstep behind the elites, um, uh, you know, to join uh, to join this revolution. And of course, the elites are as split as anyone because many elites benefited directly from being in the British Empire, either because they were political appointees or uh, were deeply invested in uh, the mercantile trade that connected the, the British Empire to its colonies. Right, a complex picture indeed. Lots of factors at play there. Um, is it any more, or is it any less complicated? I suppose in Britain, do we know what do we know? Kimberly dresses as asked on Instagram. Um, how was it viewed by British people at the time? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, many British people obviously become really outraged at some of the radical actions that the Americans took early on. Uh, and then the alliance that the Americans made with France in 1778 also struck many of them as particularly egregious. So there was a, a lot of support for um, taking a firmer and more coercive hand with these American colonists. But on the other hand, the Americans had sympathizers too in Britain. Um, you know, either they had trade co- connections, cultural connections, family connections, uh, maybe they were ideological radicals uh, themselves. Um, uh, Troy Bickham, a great uh, h- historian, wrote, wrote this book, Making Her- Headlines. Um, he points out that Washington actually was widely admired in um, in Great Britain uh, and, and ends up get, having a pretty good reputation there. So it's interesting, right? And, um, you know, there were there was conflict within Parliament, right? There were opposition, uh, there were opposition par- politicians like Edmund Burke, you know, who were kind of hammering the ministry all along uh, over this war. And eventually, right at the end of the war, there's going to be a change of ministry. And so the, you know, and so Parliament will come to the negotiating table, make peace and grant the, uh, and grant and concede the Americans bid for independence. So yeah, hardly a, a straightforward picture there. But who did emerge as the leading patriots? 
Sure. I mean, uh, it's so complicated, right? Because each of the 13 colonies has its own political elite. I mean, you know, initially, right, the British believe that it's that it's just New England that's the problem, that if you could get rid of guys like John Adams and John Hancock and Samuel Adams, that you could nip this thing in the bud and that New Englanders were particularly radical for religious reasons and for cultural reasons, and that if you could just isolate them and cut them off from the reasonable people in the middle colonies and the southern colonies, that you could put Humpty Dumpty back together again and stitch this back together. Uh, but of course, there are uh, patriots who emerge, uh, you know, particularly in, in Virginia, right? Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, uh, you know, these become some of the leading political figures. Uh, and Washington, of course, becomes an important military figure as well. Uh, and in the middle colonies, too, there are some important voices. Okay, so we've um, covered a lot of the, the, the sort of lead up into um, this conflict, uh, a lot of the factors bubbling away there. When is the first shot fired, if we can make it, put it that simply? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, some people point to the Boston Massacre of 1770, but really in terms of the Revolutionary War, uh, it's said to begin on April 19th, 1775 at Lexington and Concord. Uh, at that point, the British Army was already occupying Boston. Uh, they had a troop presence there, as they did in a number of American cities. Um, but what what ends up happening is that um, patriots end up fleeing, uh, occupied Boston, um, and, uh, and, and then the British, you know, begin to worry that the, these colonists are going to begin to arm themselves. And so they send a, a group of British troops out to Lexington, out to Concord to seize arms from an armory there. And, uh, uh, and this results in, um, an actual fight breaking out. Uh, no one is sure who fired the first shot, but, um, then, uh, what ends up happening is that this British com- uh, 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 this British company ends up having to flee back to Boston um, with colonists shooting at them uh, the whole way, and then within days, right, thousands upon thousands of New Englanders have begun surrounding British-occupied Boston, uh, and the siege of Boston begins, uh, and it's not lifted until March of 1776. And so at this stage then, um, how... Uh, feasible, if I can use the term, it does independence seem. I mean, how are the two sides um, regarding each other at this stage? Is there sort of an underdog um, mentality? Yeah, it's it, uh, this is what's so interesting, right, uh, about Thomas Paine's Common Sense, is that this is a pamphlet that was published early in 1776, after the war broke out, um, but before independence was declared. And there were a lot of people who said, Gosh, we're going up against the best navy in the world uh, and a very well or, or, well organized and efficient army. Um, is this really a good idea, or are, are we going to have our hats handed to us? Um, and uh, it, you know, so there was some nervousness about this. But but Thomas Paine tries and and Charles Lee and some others try and inject a lot of confidence, and they say, you, you know, we can do this, right? Uh, um, we'll get support um, from Britain's enemies in Europe. Uh, we'll be able to hold our own. They're going to have a lot of logistical difficulty fighting a war 3,000 miles away. Um, you, you know, we'll fight better on our own ground. You know, all we have to do is convince the British to give up, right? We're not actually trying to conquer them, right? We're just trying to kind of assert our own claims here. So, uh, so again, there's, uh, there's a certain amount after the fighting breaks out of having to, the Americans having to, to buck themselves up and tell themselves that they can, um, that they can win this by not losing. 
And I guess so these early days then they do lead to the, this declaration. What can you tell us about that? Sure. I, I mean, the, there was this Continental Congress uh, meeting in Philadelphia with delegates from the, the 13 colonies. Uh, and again, some of the these congressional delegations are gung-ho for let's declare independence, right? The Massachusetts delegation, uh, the Virginia delegation. But there were other colonies, particularly Pennsylvania and New York, who are which are big, important colonies that are a little bit reluctant, right? That, um, you, you know, there were more conservative elites in those um, in those colonies. So uh, again, there was there was a little bit of hesitancy even after the war began to actually take that step and declare independence. Uh, but again, right, like events keep carrying on. Um, you know, the, the the mobilization was happening. Um, you know, among various non elite Americans, and so um, you know, again, what what they then have to do is kind of say, all right, if we're going to be an independent nation. We have to be what the scholar Elijah Gould calls treaty worthy, right? We, we have to be, um, we have to assert our independence and not just be a rebellion, right? Which the other monarchies of Europe aren't going to, to approve of, but really kind of say, look, we've read our theory. We, we don't believe, we, we believe we've been so oppressed that we, um, we shouldn't acknowledge the sovereignty of King George III anymore. And we are, um, he has declared us out of his power anyway. And so we are asserting ourselves as independent and and, uh, and that means that we can deal independently with other sovereign nations. And so they, they lay out all their grievances. They say, this is why. And we are declaring ourselves, the United States of America, something different, something separate from Great Britain. Mm-hmm. Quite a moment. And you've enumerated some of the, um, the, the factors that are listed on that declaration already. Um, this alliance with France, um, you mentioned how it irritated people in Britain. How does it come about? How does France get involved? Sure. I mean, France is initially doesn't want to do anything overt, right? Because obviously that will uh, uh, cause European war as well. Um, So and and also, right, like they don't want to bet on a losing rebellion, right? Because they don't want to set the precedent that whenever uh, people are annoyed that they can uh, rise up and and, and topple their own government. Um, Right. That's not something that um, that King Louis is going to is going to want to countenance. Um, So uh, so they they wait and they they deal some arms and some supplies and money uh, to the Americans. And, um, you know, they, they, they try and put things off and, uh, and, and prepare maybe, you, you know, and, and so, th- but then after the British are uh, defeated under Burgoyne's army in October of 1778 at Saratoga, then the French say, okay, right. We, we see this re- rebellion as viable. We are going to, uh, have a, an official treaty of alliance with these American colonies. Um, and so that is how France gets involved. Obviously France's reasons for doing so are pretty obvious. I mean, on the one hand, there was some intellectual interest among enlightenment figures of, Oh, look at this cause for Liberty. Like we've been kicking around some of these ideas ourselves, right? Like how nice. Uh, but then, but the, but the real reason, obviously, obviously, is that anything that's bad for Britain might be good for France. And so, um, uh, and so France sees an opportunity to kind of seize more power within the European balance of power. And so they say, okay, you know, we'll support this rebellion as a way of undermining Great Britain. So we've also got um, a question now about the, the generals. You've already mentioned George Washington, but um, uh, someone, Mr. Gadders on Instagram has, has asked more generally, who are the generals of this war? Sure. I mean, it's impossible to kind of list them all, but some of the major generals on the American side are George Washington as the commander in chief throughout, uh, Nathaniel Green, Henry Knox, Horatio Gates, 
the Marquis de Lafayette, who was who, who was French, uh, and uh, and Baron von Steuben, uh, who was German. Uh, there were also um, uh, Polish uh, generals who volunteer and show up, like Pulaski and Kosciuszko. Um, so those were some of the major uh, major figures on the American side. On the British side, uh, the first commander in chief is uh, is Thomas Gage. He's replaced uh, uh, in 1775 by um, by William Howe, uh, who coordinates with his brother, who, uh, who uh, Lord Howe, who leads the naval forces. Uh, John Burgoyne is the one who um, who supervises this defeat in uh, British defeat in Saratoga. Uh, Lord Cornwallis is a, is is another important general under Sir Henry Clinton, who's who's the commander in chief who replaces Howe in um, in in the winter of 1777 1778. And then the last British commander in chief, the one who basically ends up overseeing the evacuation, the British evacuation, is um, is Guy Carleton, who becomes an important figure in Canadian history as Lord Dorchester. Mm. Great, lots of names there that I'm sure will pop up throughout this episode. Um, and how can the the nature of the warfare be characterised? Um, how does it change throughout the years? Oh, the, well, the nature of warfare, that's a big question. I mean, this is something that, I, uh, that I'm writing a bit about because I got very interested in a major fire that hits New York City in 1776. And, and for a long time, I've been interested in the question of towns being burned. Uh, there have been other historians like Cole Jones or Holger Hook who have written about treatment of prisoners, treatment of civilians. Um, it is a brutal war. I mean, there, there was a, a big impulse in the 20th century for a lot of historians to say this was a moderate revolution. There aren't heads being cut off the way there were in the French Revolution, that there was something more civilized about the American Revolution as a whole. And and one could say maybe in relative terms that's true of the American Revolution, but wars are never pleasant, right? And so, you know, in terms of privation uh, and famine, uh, epidemic disease, uh, you know, and, and just the hard hand of war, um, you know, the, the revolution uh, could be quite brutal and there were perpetrators on both sides. And so um, Jones has argued that the uh, that the war gets progressively worse, uh, you know, so and so again, that's something that uh, that historians can argue about is do we see change over time within the war as people get angrier and angrier? Uh, or as, as, as the scholar Sungbok Kim argues in, in Westchester, New York, people become depoliticized, right? That like war just beats them down um, and, and makes them uh, uninterested in, in either side and, and wanting to just be left alone. That's one thing our listeners are good at is posing big questions, I must be honest. Um, so uh, we've got a question here, which is potentially uh, slightly easier, the Betsy Ross flag. Um, what was that? Sure. The person to read on uh, on Betsy Ross is definitely Marla Miller, who wrote a great book trying to kind of say, like, who was this real person? Um, and she says, like, that we don't know if she actually had the idea for the first flag with the five pointed stars. And that wasn't even the first flag that the Americans flew, of course. She might have, though. Uh, her full name, if you count all her last names, because she had several ma- uh, marriages, was Elizabeth Griscom Ross Ashburn Claypool. Um, and she had married an upholsterer and kept up the business after he died. Um, and and then she does become a kind of premier flag maker, right? And 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 so Miller focuses on her as a as a really interesting female artisan in her own right. Um, and so again, right, like it becomes a kind of cutesy story, but the but, but the reality uh, turns out to be more interesting. So uh, you mentioned this mythology, and I guess um, the the privations of war that you've just um, discussed, and that the hardship of it. Do you think how much do you think that gets or comes across these days in the sort of um, more mythologized elements of this ideological fight? 
Sure. I mean, it, look, academic historians are always going to be annoyed by this kind of mythologizing. Uh, you know, Jan Lewis calls it the bedtime story version of the American Revolution, right? If Americans are going to have a civic culture that is not based on ethnicity, but is going to be based on high-minded ideals of liberty, equality, and union, if we're going to teach school children about that and, uh, you, you know, and things like that, that there's got to be some kind of patriotism surrounding the origin story of the United States. But on the other hand, right, uh, uh, academics being academics, and not just academics, there are other people who are quick to point out that, you know, the American Revolution was not all peachy, uh, and that in some ways it perpetuates uh, the enslavement of African Americans, the dispossession of Native Americans, and accelerates, and some have argued even accelerates those things. Um, you, you know, and so, and and also, if you pile onto that all the death and destruction that happens as a result of an eight-year war, um, that you know, one can have a kind of more mature view of the American Revolution as well. That also uh, talks about some of the things that do not look quite so rosy, such, such as. Well, uh, again, such as, uh, uh, you know, such as de death and destruction, such as, um, you know, the Sullivan-Clinton campaign of 1779, where Washington essentially orders uh, American troops, like, go into uh, Haudenosaunee or Iroquois country and just burn all the farms and cornfields you can. That will drive starving Native Americans into British forts um, and will clear the way for us to possess this land and, uh, and use it for ourselves, right? So again, that's not something that was taught widely in American schools, but we're hopefully, I think, getting to a place where we can talk about uh, both sides of what the American Revolution actually looks like. Um, we, we did have um, quite a few questions, actually, um, from our listeners on uh, the, the role uh, or um, the actions of Native Americans in the conflict. Um, so we've got a few from Charlotte Sikorsky. Thank you. Jessica Roberts has asked, what impact did the conflict have of Indigenous American communities? Um, what can you tell us about that? I mean, I think historians widely agree that the impact of the revolution was uh, was just devastating, right? Uh, uh, you know, prior to the Seven Years' War, there were groups like the Haudenosaunee or the Iroquois who could play the British and French off of one another uh, in order to kind of maintain their autonomy uh, and um, and 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 have the greatest negotiating advantage for the trade goods that they wanted, and kind of you know keeping greedy settlers off their backs. After the French are out of their picture in 1763, you know, then there, there, there might be a notion that, well, at least the British, if they don't want to have more Native American warfare, might be able to restrain the white American colonists from further encroachment on Native American lands. But once you take the British out of the picture, or at least, you know, push them northward into Canada, the Native Americans have less ability to do that. And so, you know, the white, the white American settlers are like, aha, you know, um, uh, let's, uh, let's go in and, and begin taking more, uh, more Native American lands. Um, and so, like, what the Americans decided is, well, any Native American group like the Cherokee or the Creek or the Iroquois or the Shawnee who sided with Britain, we will treat them as conquered nations. But even some of the groups who allied with, uh, with the Americans, like the Oneida or the Stockbridge, uh, didn't necessarily fare, fare very well and were often forced to cede uh, certain land, uh, land claims anyway. So again, like uh, um, there's a variety of different uh, indigenous experiences because there are a variety of different indigenous groups living in different areas. So it's, it is very difficult to generalize, but, um, what, uh, but again, it, um, it ends up not being a very good thing. Uh, you know, look, uh, Gregory uh, Evans Dowd has written an interesting article saying, look, indigenous people don't fare all that much better under the British Empire in Canada or Australia or parts of Africa either. So again, right, it's, it's part of a larger story of settler colonialism. Uh, nevertheless, right, uh, uh, it, what's interesting is that even though 
white Americans use Native Americans as their uh, as their symbol, right, in the Boston Tea Party and in and in cartoons and other things. For actual Native Americans, you know, they they end up having to fight a, a rear guard action against this newly unrestrained white population that wants their land. And that is going to be, it's not the start and it's not the end, but it is a, a sort of ugly chapter in the long story of, of Indigenous people being dispossessed of their land. And is that a topic then that's, that's being um, reappraised, studied at the, at the moment? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a chapter in Jeffrey Osler's book on genocide. Uh, Colin Calloway has written a number of really brilliant books. Uh, there are indigenous scholars themselves. Uh, you know, I, 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 the, the stuff about Native American dis- disguises comes from Phil Deloria. Um, uh, I believe Alyssa Matt Pleasant is, is working on, on something on the Haudenosaunee. So, uh, you know, so there's, there's a lot of, uh, of, of attention being paid to it right now, a lot of increased interest in it, uh, some of which I think comes from the controversy over the Dakota pipeline, uh, but I, I imagine from other sources as well. You know, on the other hand, there were Native Americans who also fought with uh, American units. Um, you know, that's something that I looked into a little bit in my current book. Um, so there, there's, a, there's a variety of really interesting stories to tell, and, um, and, and historians have been telling them for, for many decades. But again, I think it's, um, it's, it's reaching audiences more. Yes, how interesting. Um, and you've mentioned uh, a couple of times as well, um, referenced uh, enslaved people. Um, do, what's known about um, enslaved people who fought in the conflict on, on either side? Sure. Um, well, so there were um, eventually what happens, uh, there are black people who are part of the army surrounding Boston from the very beginning. Um, you know, names we know, indigenous people, some indigenous fo- folks too. Um, it, you know, again, uh, uh, you know, so so again, it's a complicated story. By the middle of the war, uh, many New England states in particular were offering um, enslaved black people their freedom in exchange for military service. Uh, and again, in, and in all the New England colonies, uh, um, they will eventually abolish slavery soon after the, the, either during the war or soon after the war anyway. So that's one half of the story. On the, uh, you know, the other part of the story largely but not exclusively takes place in the South, uh, which is that, uh, again, from the beginning in 1775, you had British military and civil officers saying to enslaved people uh, who were enslaved by rebel masters, hey, if you're enslaved by a rebel master and you come fight for us, we will give you your, your freedom. And this obviously disrupts the, the plantation system quite a bit. Now, that doesn't necessarily make the British liberators because loyalists were, you know, enslaved property was, was generally respected. And there were loyalists who end up uh, leaving the colonies at the end of the war and they take their enslaved people with them. Um, so, you know, Britain is not necessarily looking to dismantle slavery at this point, uh, but they do have an interest as a war measure in disrupting the rebels' slaveholding. Uh, and so many... Uh, black people take advantage of this in their own right. They run away. They participate in work stoppage. Um, they uh, uh, they rise up in in one way or another. And thousands uh, of of enslaved people flee from rebel masters. Uh, and and some of them make it to British occupied New York City and uh, and leave. And their uh, and their ability to claim their freedom is respected by Gar- Guy Carlton. Uh, this is something that annoys Washington. Uh, some of Washington's own enslaved people fled from his. Uh, fled from his service. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it is definitely a moment in which slavery is disrupted. That's true of the War of 1812 as well, when the British come back. Um, and so, and so it's interesting, right? Like nowadays we're in dispute. Should we emphasize the fact that, 
Um, there were abolitionists, both black and white, during the revolutionary period who put slavery eventually on, a, on its long path towards abolition. Um, you know, or should we emphasize the degree to which the American Revolution further entrenches slavery? Uh, you know, because, of course, there are four million people still enslaved on the eve of the Civil War many years later in 1860. So the revolution does not end slavery right away. Um, and it, um, and it, you know, and so, you know, that's something that we have to take into account as well. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But, and because it's a civil war and it's all about just declaring your loyalty one way or another, obviously for that reason, it's that, it's that much easier to pose as a member of the opposite side. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We've got a question here about what uniforms did soldiers wear during the American Revolution? Uh, can we broadly do? You, can you broadly answer that? Was it was there a uniform? Yeah, sure. Um, the The British Army obviously wore red coats. Uh, they also have uh, German allies, right? And so the Jaeger Corps, for instance, wore green. Um, so there would be would have been some variety on the British side. Uh, on the American side, things were less uniform. The official uh, the official uniform was was blue, but you could see ev- ev- everything from hunting shirts to brown, green, gray, even some red. Um, so there was less uniformity, let's say, on the on the American side. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned in your in your last answer the the British occupation of New York. Can we say a little about how that came about? Sure. Uh, well, so this is part of the campaign of 1776, which is, uh, you know, the, the British had had left Boston, evacuated Boston in March of 1776, and they kind of hang out in Halifax, Nova Scotia for a little while. Uh, and then they get massively reinforced. The largest amphibious expedition, you know, in the history of the world up to that time, something like, I think, 40,000 soldiers and sailors, I may have that number wrong off the top of my head, uh, begin descending on uh, uh, on New York Harbor. Um, and so Washington has a few, you know, a few thousand men himself. Itself, but it's clear that without uh, naval support, the Americans cannot hold all of those islands, right? Long Island, Manhattan Island, Staten Island, uh, and a bunch of other little ones beside. And, you know, New York City is at the mouth of the Hudson River. It was con- considered an extremely desirable strategic location. Um, and so the British come in, uh, and it takes a while, but eventually they force um, they force Washington from Staten Island, from Long Island, uh, and, from, and from Manhattan. Uh, and then after that, the, the British occupy Manhattan, and it's the last place that they evacuate in November of 1783 uh, within the 13 colonies. Um, and so, uh, so, well, although one could argue that some of the Midwestern forts, they, they kind of hang around in, uh, also, as, uh, even though the Americans claim that territory for themselves. So, yeah, New York City is an occupied town. Uh, Donald Johnson has a book out uh, relatively recently that talks about the, the various cities that the British occupied, not just New York, but at various times, Boston, Newport, Philadelphia. Charleston and Savannah. And those are mainly due to strategic importance or just being established cities at the time? 
Yeah, sure. They're established cities. They're good places to resupply your ships, possibly get them repaired if they've got those facilities. Uh, you know, the hope was, since most of those were political capitals, uh, that they would be places to reestablish civil government. Um, so, you know, the, occup- the occupation of these cities never works out as well for the British as they hoped, but um, it, they seemed natural places for the British to occupy for a variety of reasons. I see. So if we can go back to some individuals then, we've had some uh, some questions about them. So perhaps we can zero in on a few figures. Uh, we've got a question here. Who was Nathan Hale? Nathan Hale was a Yale College graduate who becomes a captain uh, 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 for, uh, during the uh, during the early part of the revolution. Um, he was a school teacher, and he uh, is sent to spy to find out about Howe's movements uh, on Long Island in late summer of 1776. He's caught. Uh, actually, the day after the fire that burns about a fifth of New York City, he is hanged the day after that fire on September twenty second, and he becomes particularly famous for his dying words, uh, which he more or less cribbed from Addison's play Cato. Um, you know, regretting that he had but one life to live for his country, uh, and actually, like it was thought so important for American schoolchildren to know about Nathan Hale that there was a huge fight in the nineteen twenties uh, over textbooks that uh, that dared to not mention Nathan Hale, um, and so. So he's come to have this kind of legendary outside importance, uh, even though he was not a particularly successful spy. But he had the right friends who, who kind of, you know, pump up his reputation um, in the 19th century. And so, um, yeah, he becomes this famous figure. But, uh, you know, there's been a ton of interest in espionage during the American Revolution. There was the television series Turn, uh, which I'm sorry to say I haven't watched yet. I'm saving it, uh, uh, you know, for uh, I'm saving it for myself. Um, uh, but But yeah, especially around Long Island, there's a lot of really interesting espionage activity. Interesting. And I guess Nathan Hale's part of that that enduring mythology that you've already mentioned. Um, And I guess another figure who is as well, and perhaps into that espionage angle is Benedict Arnold. We've got a question about him as well. Yeah, Benedict Arnold uh, had had a a much more sterling military reputation. Another patriot, interestingly, from from Eastern Connecticut, from Norwich. Uh, You know, he was vital to the capture of Fort Ticonderoga early on in 1775. He plays a a, 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 a major role in the unsuccessful American assault on Quebec uh, in 1775, 1776. Uh, He was crucial to the Americans' victory in the Saratoga campaign in 1777, where he actually loses part of his leg. Uh, But he's repeatedly passed over for the recognition he thinks he deserves. He marries a Philadelphian uh, who is from a loyalist family while he was uh, acting as commandant in Philadelphia. And their connections end up putting him in touch with the British, uh, especially with the the British spymaster, John Andre. Um, he agrees to give up West Point in exchange for a British commission and for money. Uh, and so in American history, his name becomes kind of synonymous with treason. And he, he's kind of paraded in effigy in, in America afterwards. And, uh, and Washington is really outraged by the betrayal. Uh, this might be a very naive question, but I, uh, how easy was it? I mean, for, for um, you mentioned espionage more broadly. How easy would it have been for a, a soldier from either side or an officer from either side to communicate? I mean, what sort of channels might have been used? Not just soldiers, but civilians, including female, women and, and enslaved people, right? Uh, um, right, if you keep in mind that, like, both societies more or less look the same in a, 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 to a great degree. And, you know, there were a lot of recent immigrants in America who were from England and Scotland and, and Wales and Ireland, right? And so, you, you know, you, you know there, were, there were German soldiers fighting for the British, but there were also 
German immigrants, uh, you know, who spoke German in America. So both sides have all these commonalities. And so to kind of pose, but, and because it's a civil war, and it's all about just declaring your loyalty one way or another, obviously, for that reason, it's that, uh, it's that much easier to pose as a member of the opposite side. And so, yeah, Judith Van Buskirk has a great uh, book, by the way, about, speaking of Occupied New York, called Generous Enemies, where she talks about just how porous enemy lines were, right? How easy it was to get from New Jersey or, uh, you know, or mainland New York or Long Island or Connecticut uh, in and out of occupied New York City, such that, uh, you know, and, and the trade relationships that continue and the family relationships that continue. So again, yeah, like finding out what's going on was sometimes uh, not very difficult. But again, you know, it, you have to put a lot of money into your intelligence service and you have to make sure that the intelligence that you're getting is reliable. It's, it's hard work. Right. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm very guilty, very naively of imagining sort of two different sides and never the twain shall meet, whereas I guess it sounds like it's in such flux. Yeah, yeah. There were people who changed their minds during the war, who start out as as ardent patriots and become loyalists or, you know, or, or, or vice versa. Uh, there were loyalists who reintegrated into American society afterwards, who just, you know, you know who were just like, yeah, all right, I backed the losing side, <laughs> but I, I don't seem to be too hated and prominent. So I'm going to try and come back to my community. And, uh, and some of them even become uh, politically and economically quite important. Mm. How interesting. Uh, were there any sort of ramifications otherwise for people who didn't sort of weren't able to integrate quite so seamlessly back into positions they'd held? Oh, sure. Thousands go into exile, right, um, who are forced to uh, leave. Uh, who, their, their possessions are sequestered by the, uh, by the various state governments, uh, and they're forced to leave either for Canada, for England, for the Bahamas, Bermuda, the Caribbean. Uh, some even make it over the course of their careers into India and Australia, um, uh, uh, you know, scattered throughout the British Empire. So, yeah, there were loyalists who were born in America, who had families that had been in America for generations, uh, but who were nonetheless forced to leave and never come back. Um, and, who's, and who lose uh, out financially greatly because they had investments in American lands, uh, in American townhouses, in the cities, uh, who lose thousands of pounds um, worth of, uh, worth of, of, of assets uh, as a result of backing the losing side. So uh, we've got another question here from Harry. You mentioned uh, Canada there. Um, how was this conflict looked upon by the, the Canadian colonies and why didn't they get involved? Sure. Well, uh, it wasn't for lack of trying by the Americans. Uh, I mean, when we're talking about Canada, you know, for the purposes of this conversation, we're mostly talking about Quebec, which was dominated by French Canadians and had been conquered by Great Britain in 1763. And maybe we're talking about Nova Scotia and, uh, and St. John's or what's now Prince Edward Island. The American colonists, the re rebelling American colonists, hoped that these provinces would also join them. But the French Canadians didn't forget that the New Englanders hated them, hated Catholicism. Uh, whereas the British, by passing the Quebec Act of 1774, had been sufficiently permissive towards Catholic religion and, and French common law that, that this kind of dissuades the French Canadians from, uh, from joining the rebels. So the Americans try and make a military effort to kind of back their political play in 1775 by sending an army to conquer Montreal and Quebec. But weather, disease, and poor supplies kind of conspire against the American effort, uh, and, uh, and the Americans are defeated and end up having to retreat. And so that's the end of American dreams of Quebec as a 14th, uh, as a 14th state. So um, we've got a question here. Um, I'm sorry, I'm aware I'm skipping us around a lot, but I'm trying to hit all of our excellent listener questions. Um, so we've got a question here about what were the key the key battles, and specifically from Eliza Yair on Instagram, um, would like to know about the Battle of Yorktown. 
Yeah, sure. I think of Yorktown as more of a siege, although there were some important hot fights for key redoubts and stuff like that. I mean, so Cornwallis had had marched uh, basically from the Carolinas northward into Virginia. Uh, actually, Benedict Arnold, who by then was a British officer, you, you know, uh, made some important raids into the Virginia interior. But uh, but Cornwallis needs some resupply, and so he's holed up on the Yorktown Peninsula. And uh, Washington initially um, was 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 about to get some some French naval support and and and, our, and military support, and he's like, let's attack New York City. Uh, but attacking New York City was always going to be a pretty dicey pro- a proposition. And at the last minute, he's convinced to coordinate the French um, in Virgi- in the Chesapeake instead. So the French Navy would bottle up Cornwallis in Chesapeake Bay and prevent him from receiving support, while the American and French armies would march south, surround Yorktown, and force Cornwallis with thousands of troops. Uh, to surrender. Uh, And he does, and this happens in October in 1781, and this is what ultimately ends the British, uh, the appetite back in Britain for further offensive operations. Um, The war uh, isn't officially over for another two years in 1783, and there is further conflict between 1781 and 1783. But in terms of major operations, uh, Yorktown, most historians agree, pretty much marks the end of British efforts to continue to fight against American independence. I mean, there are other theaters of war by this time, right? Keep in mind, once the French and then the Spanish and the Dutch join this war, uh, the British are fighting a, a war potentially in the English Channel, in the Mediterranean, in India, in the Caribbean, right? They've got other fish to fry. And, and at some point they they decide, look, the, the 13 colonies don't want to be part of the empire anymore. Let's consolidate the gains we have elsewhere, shore up the other parts of the world uh, that we want to control, and, and let's let the American colonies go and and, uh, and present, pr- protect our interests as best as we can against the, the French and the Spanish who want their own things from us. Right. Well, we've got all of these fronts then, but we have got one here that um, perhaps lends itself to speculation, definitely lends itself to speculation. Uh, Harkness1970 has asked, would the Americans have won without the French? Yeah, another one of those counterfactual questions. Um, it, you know, it's it, it's hard to know. Probably not, uh, although some historians disagree about this. The better question is, could the, could Britain have won either way? Right? Uh, were they really willing to make the concessions that uh, people living in America wanted? You know, could they, or, or alternatively, could they have really rammed control down, uh, down the control of the American colonies? And if so, for how long? Right? Canada itself will leave the British Empire by the uh, by the middle of the nineteenth century. Right? So, um, so again, like. French support definitely helps, right? They needed that gunpowder. They needed some of the military support and financial support, certainly, right? Like, um, you know, the American colonies definitely needed uh, monetary support from somewhere. And so that was absolutely vital. But the other question to ask is, um, you know, even if the British could have won some key defeats and forced uh, the Americans to, to surrender, how long would that surrender have lasted, right? With with even more resentments now having been piled up uh, once the war breaks out. So I, I do think that French support is crucial and Americans should always be grateful to the French for that support. You know, however, it's, you know, and it's always hard with these counterfactuals, but it's not clear to me um, how the British could have um, consolidated the type of control that they wanted over these independent-minded, English-speaking, Protestant American colonists uh, in the way that they tried to force control in other parts of the world, uh, you know, against non-white people, let's say, in, in India or, you know, in various parts of Africa, etc. 
Yes, some some very interesting thoughts there. And we do have have a question, uh, another question on um, British imperial pursuits after this, I suppose, which is um, Naomi Warwick, thanks Naomi, has asked, did the war and its outcome change the British approach to how they administered other colonies, particularly settler colonies? Yeah, sure. I mean, British colonial administration had always been a bit of a patchwork, right? Uh, um, Cutting different deals with different components of the empire, right? Because, you know, after 1763, the empire includes uh, 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 French Quebecois, enslaved people in the the Caribbean. Uh, You know, it it includes Virginia planters. It includes New England fishermen, right? It's, you know, it it includes, um, you know, the the, the territories being controlled by the East India Company. I mean, it's such a wide... um, um, you know, so Bengali people, right? Such a wide variety of people, and uh, and they don't have the same type of administration over each of those different groups. Uh, you know, to say nothing of the various Native Americans who they're also trying to kind of maintain alliances and trade relationships with, and you know, over whom do they consider themselves sovereign? Who do they consider allies? Right? Like, so there's no one way to think about the British Empire. You know, in a way that the British. Um, bring on the revolution by trying to centralize all that a bit and, and reform and regularize it a little bit and assert more sovereignty um, and, more, and a more regular form of, so- of sovereignty. And that's still something they're going to try and do in all the colonies they administer. But there's going to be a long legacy of pushback as well in Ireland, in Canada, in India, and elsewhere. And ironically, right, Maya Jasanoff points out that some of these loyalists who went into exile in, in these various parts of the British Empire, whether it's Sierra Leone or Nova Scotia, right, they become obstreperous you know, American rebels, right? Like in these various parts of the British Empire as well. So look, the British Empire very successfully controls a lot of territory throughout the 19th century, but the pushback was always there as well. And and one could argue that the legacy of both of those things, um, you know, owed that legacy in part to the, uh, the American War for Independence. Right. So that's uh, a little more about the legacy then. But so we've mentioned Yorktown. Um, the war happens, uh, still continues for two years after that. So we've got this eight year conflict that's, that's coming to an end. Um, how, how does it end and how does it, how smooth is the evacuation? Sure. I mean, right. It's it, obviously it's two different things, right? There's the peace negotiations that are going on in Paris. And then there's what does the end of the war actually look like in America and, and in other things. And, and look, there were major battles during this period in the Caribbean, for instance, right? Like, you know, this hurts Americans' feelings, but like, A, they weren't the most important colonies to the British necessarily before the war began. And they don't, by the end of the war, they're not necessarily the most important theater of that war from the British perspective either. I mean, so, so for the, the negotiations take a a long time over the course of 1782-1783. Uh, you know, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, right, Henry Lawrence are on hand uh, on the American side, John Jay, right, doing the negotiating uh, for the American side. Um, you know, one of uh, Henry Lawrence's old slave trading buddies, Richard Oswald, is one of the representatives on the British side. So there was, um, there was a little bit of buddy-buddy um, among the various negotiators, British and American negotiators who were meeting in Paris. The Americans have to cannily play their own French allies off of their British erstwhile enemies. And so the Americans basically end up getting a lot of what they wanted. They get uh, territorial land claims all the way to the Mississippi River. They get um, uh, they get independence. They get, um, a, you know, a whole host of other things. So that's how the war ends on paper. 
um, you know, in terms of what uh, the occupation was like, you know, there there were people on the British side who really kind of fantasized right up until the treaty is finalized, like, hey, the American colonies actually still look really divided one another. Maybe the British could still press their advantage. Maybe the British could peel off Vermont for themselves. Maybe maybe they could have established a beachhead like Hong Kong, right, in New York City. I, I mean, I think that's a wild fantasy, but I think about it sometimes, like what that would have been like. You know, so uh, again, right, like, there's a lot of kind of tense nervousness as people wait for weeks and months for the news to come from Paris about what the what the provisions of the treaty are going to look like. Um, and, you know, and loyalists are really worried that they're going to lose it all as a result of what these treaty negotiations, uh, what, what emerges from these treaty negotiations. Um, and so, you know, by 1782, the British still occupy Charleston, Savannah, and New York City. They occupy, uh, they, they evacuate from Savannah and, and Charleston first. And then the last place that they evacuate is New York City in November of 1783. And we're taking us a little bit then beyond the um, scope of this podcast. We are talking about the, the war itself, I suppose. But what then is the the, the feeling of um, this new nation building that then happens? I mean, is it exultant? Is it? What, can you give us a sense of that? I mean, of course, there were you know wild celebrations of the evacuation, and New York City actually celebrates its own little evacuation day holiday in November. In November, uh, you know, for many years to kind of celebrate uh, finally having been victorious over the British, but. There were concerns as well that this loose confederation of 13 states with very different economic interests from one another would not hold together, that they would separate into different confederations, that the French or the Spanish or some other uh, European power would pick off, um, you know, a good chunk of what the Americans were trying to hold for themselves. So there was a lot of nervousness that these United States were not very united and were going to be a very weak developing nation uh, for many years. So again, right, while the Americans like to read backwards from their superpower status and be like, oh yeah, so the United States was awesome from the get-go. Uh, no, right? Like, there's a, there, there's a, the Americans are going to have a lot of struggle ahead of them, you know, and, and again, they have to they have to form a whole new government uh, under the U.S. Constitution in 1787, and uh, you know, in order to um, control some of the elements uh, uh, under the Articles of Confederation that that many leading Americans thought were were very weak and would undermine uh, the ability of the American Union to persist. So a lot more history to play out then, and that's definitely one for for another podcast episode. Um, but if we can go back to the the war, and a few people have asked about its representation in popular culture. So someone's asked about the Patriots, someone's asked about Hamilton. Um, can we talk more broadly about how it's represented and potentially how it's mythologized? Yeah, yeah. I think it's very tough to make a, a kind of honest account of the American Revolution that you would actually be able to get American consumers to come to, because American consumers would expect a certain level of patriotism Right. Whereas academics are always going to insist on a certain level of complexity. My favorite line about the Patriot is by David Hackett Fisher, who said in the New York Times that the Patriot is to history as Godzilla is to biology. Um, <laughs> I mean, the most egregiously offensive thing about the Patriot is this idea that you know, Mel Gibson's character, uh, who's supposed to be uh, Francis Marion, that the black people who work on his plantation work for wages and were not enslaved in South Carolina. It's like, yeah, not quite. Um, interestingly, I saw that that movie in a in a London movie theater uh, when it first came out. And uh, I remember the British audiences uh, laughing in particular at the caricature of the French officer. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so that movie, you know, while it's exciting to watch, you know, does not really hold up as a kind of factual representation. Hamilton is more interesting. As a historian, the thing I like about Hamilton, actually, is the, way, is the ways in which it shows how uncertain history can be. 
right? No one was actually in the room where it happened. Um, you know, the idea of you have no control over your own legacy, right? That visual of Eliza burning her letters in a bucket and therefore depriving historians of really knowing what her feelings were. All that is there for the audience. The idea that like, okay, we're showing you this story, and we're kind of whitewashing the reputation of this militaristic, centralizing um, uh, figure who was a big supporter of central banking and things like that, right? Like we're we're, we're kind of like sanding some of the edges off of uh, off of that guy's reputation. And so I know, you know, I know people object to it on uh, on those grounds, on the idea of you know showing a bunch of uh, of slaveholders as uh, as as actors of color, right? So you know, obviously there are all those criticisms of the show. But what I really like about the show as a historian is that it is that Lin-Manuel Miranda, I think, is, is sort of confessing, right? Like, this is not going to be the whole story, right? Um, you, you know, I'm even showing you the degree to which historians have to rely on this imperfect record and are going to be arguing over this historical record uh, for many years. Because really, that's what the founders themselves, the elite founders, were like. They didn't agree with one another. They were fighting all the time. And they were very um, solicitous of their own fame and reputation um, and, and could be very insecure and prickly about that and are, are looking to secure their legacy. So again, like I, I like that about Hamilton. I do think it's very difficult to come up with an honest reckoning that everyone will like um, about the revolution. I just think that's um, that that's really hard. Right. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I guess if people um, like Miranda, if people are reimagining events for the screen for drama. And um, we've got a question here from Christina Camacho on Facebook, who's asked, um, are there any revisionist views and who are the main historians considering these right now? Sure. I mean, there's there's a classic exchange where someone once asked the great historian Eric Foner, like, when did all this revisionism start? And he said, well, probably with Herodotus. Um, <laughs> so, you know, look, revisionism happens all the time. That's what keeps uh, academic historians in, in business, not because the, f- the historical evidence themselves is constantly changing, but we do discover new things. We, you know, we come up with new interpretations that, uh, that are better suited to the times. And, um, you know, and so revision is a constant uh, and it always has been. Right. The first group of historians, Marcy Otis Warren, you know, etc., et were revisionists. Right. They were revising the history of the revolution, uh, even though they had lived through it. You know, and so there's so many great books that I can re- recommend. I just got uh, uh, Kate Carte's book on religion and the revolution into my hands. Finally, I was looking forward to that for a long time. I just saw uh, on Twitter today, Andrew Wehrman showing his cover on smallpox and the uh, and the revolution that's going to be coming out later this year. You know, I'm going to have my own book on the burning of New York City and 1776 uh, out with Yale University Press. There are so many good books. You know, the the most recent survey that a lot of people like is Alan Taylor's American Revolutions, A a Continental History. My students really like Kathleen Duval's Independence Lost on uh, on the Lower Mississippi Valley and the the various figures there. So there there are so many good books that that I get to assign and that I can recommend to students. That was Benjamin Karp. Associate Professor of History at Brooklyn College. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. 
I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.